Thank you, worship team. I love uh, hearing a new song and, and just getting to uh, see these words for the first time and experience um, what it is we're trying to do and what it is we say and what it is we believe about God. And sometimes songs are one of the best ways to do that. So um, before we get started, if you are in uh, preschool through grade five, it's a great time to be dismissed at this time. And if you are thinking, like, maybe I'm not going to go today, um, I highly encourage you to go today. We have a, a testimony in the middle of the service that is, is definitely PG-13. Um, it might even be R. It doesn't glorify sin, but it does tell it how it is. Um, and I've, I've seen it, I've prayed over it, and, uh, and it, it's, it's the truth, and it's what people sometimes experience. So... Um, Anyway, so I just wanted to forewarn you on, on kind of that. So, but we're not starting with that. I woke up yesterday, and uh, I'm like, really? Really? I didn't want snow. I didn't really want summer to be over that quickly. Like, oh, wait, not even having summer. Like, three days of spring. And I realized it's Minnesota, but it's still, it just seems unnatural. Like, mm, I know we're, you know, all the, all the weather people say we're supposed to get three inches in April, but still, it's unnatural. It's like we only get six weeks of summer. Why? Why? But, you know, I was thinking about other things that are unnatural, and maybe some of you have to go way back for this, some of you not so much, but teachers in the real world, that's just unnatural. Maybe you remember it. I remember it was my first grade teacher, Mrs. Smearud, and we were in Hugo's grocery store, and my mom is pushing the cart, and I'm like trying to secretly put things in the cart, and then in the produce line, I see her, my teacher, and I'm like, this is unnatural. She's not supposed to be, I mean, she, I just assumed, because I've only seen her at school, that she lives at school, that she sleeps at school, and she eats the cafeteria food all three meals a day. Like, it's unnatural to see her out in the real world. But then I was a lifeguard, and then I saw a teacher in a swimsuit one time. And talk about, I'm not, I'm, I'll just stop there, but like, that was unnatural, because now you're outside of the school, and you're in a bathing suit. It does relate, I promise you. The story we're going to look at today in the scriptures was unnatural. It would have shocked the disciples way more than seeing a teacher in a bathing suit. So if you have a Bible, seriously, if you have a Bible, go to John 13. John's in the New Testament. He's, he's a great writer. Um, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and in John 13... Uh, a lot of people say, if you haven't read the Bible very much and you start at Genesis, you get in the beginning and then you get a few chapters in and you're like, wow, this is really hard. And then you look at the thickness of the book and you go, mm, maybe later. But John's a great place to start because it says, in the beginning, there was the word. So you kind of get a preview of the first part so you can feel a little bit better about yourself and, and start at John. But in John 13, what is going on here is that all throughout this story, this writer has been saying this story about Jesus. It was not his time. It was not his time. It was not his time. It was not yet his time. And now in John 13, he says, it's his time. So let's, if you've gotten open there, let's, uh, let's pray and then look at what it says. God, we just were thankful um, that, that we're unworthy and still you love us. Uh, may we get a true picture of who you are today, God, that, that these ancient writers 
tried to describe the very heart of who you are, God, a God that, that is different and unique um, in so many ways, but something that we often, often overlook. So I just pray that as we go into the, the scriptures here, that you would um, illuminate that for us, that you would shine it not only on what it said then, but what it says to us today. So we just want to see who you truly are, O oh God, um, as we read this. Amen. In John 13, it says that it was just before the Passover celebration. The Passover marked the beginning of this big festival in Judaism, the festival of unleavened bread, which means flatbread. And so um, this, this night was a really important night. It was the night that, the, um, that commemorates the Jews being slaves in Egypt. And so it would start it off, and then it would kick off the seven-day festival. So it was just before the Passover celebration, and Jesus knew that his time had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved the disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the end. The evening meal, the Passover meal, was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, one of the disciples, the son of Simon Iscariot, to to betray Jesus. But Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water in a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around himself. And when he came to Simon Peter, he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but someday you will. And he says, no, Lord, no, you'll never wash my feet little Jewish background here. Um, Like the Passover meant that this was, since this was such a big deal, this was such a big festival, that each of these Jewish people, each of these religious people, because they wanted to honor God, they went to the temple or the holy place and they took a ceremonial bath, men with men, women with women. They took the ceremonial bath and then they were considered clean. And then they went to their homes and they didn't have electricity, so they probably prepared the meal outside and then they brought that inside. And if they, didn't have, um, if they didn't have a home, they rented a room in someone else's house. And then they brought that meal up there, and then they would do their hand washing, and then they were ready to eat their meal. But when they came in, it was really important uh, because of the streets and because it was dusty or muddy there, dusty in the dry season, muddy in the, the uh, wet season, they would have a bowl for their feet to wash their feet in, to get the dirt off and stuff like that. And so um, a, a guest or the person who owned the house would provide this as a hospitality thing, and they could, they could wash their own feet. Um, but they didn't have, it wasn't their home, so, so they couldn't do that. But oftentimes, that instead of just having that bowl out, they would bring a servant, actually the lowest servant, of all the servants, and the servant would do this. And this was considered a menial, a very, just not just a dirty job, just a low job. And see, we got to look at the text. The text says this, the meal was already in progress, and it doesn't make any mention up until this point about a bowl. It doesn't make any mention at this point um, about a servant. It doesn't make any mention at this point about a slave. So they didn't do it themselves, and nobody volunteered to do it. That's, like, that's really important to the story. So Jesus does it. And 
um, they would have either been on the floor or on couches, and their heads would have been in the middle, and they kind of would have looked like a star coming out where the, the food's in the middle, and each of their heads are, are close to it, and their feet are all kind of sticking out from there. And then they would have leaned like this, and they would have pulled off their food and eaten it like that. And so and I say that point, and it's kind of important because Jesus would have gotten up, and they probably, probably wouldn't have paid attention to that. They would have kept eating, they would have kept talking, but all of a sudden, when he starts taking off his robe, remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's kind of like a priest or a pastor or a teacher, and he didn't have one of these little white collars or a robe, but he had a rabbinical outfit, um, an outfit that would have set him apart as a rabbi. And he starts taking that off. He starts taking off his status symbol. And then he takes off whatever um, other clothes are under there until he's just down to kind of a loincloth underwear type of thing. And that would have been the same outfit that the lowest servants or that a slave would have worn. And so they, I mean, I was always weirded out when I would read this story because it was, I just kind of pictured teacher swimsuit. But the reason why the disciples would have seen that was because Jesus is now like putting on the same picture as a slave. Instead of being rabbi and Lord, he's now servant or slave. And he doesn't say anything. He just grabs this bowl, he gets the water, and he starts washing their feet. Remember, their feet are on the outside. So it might have even been like they didn't even notice the first person. We don't, we don't exactly know, but we do know that when they come to Simon Peter, they're just, they're silent. And, and I love Peter because he just says what everybody else is thinking. Peter needs a filter, and uh, he doesn't have one, and I appreciate that. And that's why he says, Lord, what are you doing? You'll never wash my feet. Because what Jesus is saying, what he's really saying is, Lord, are you going to put yourself below me? Are you going to be my slave? If you're one with God, why would you humiliate yourself? Because in the ancient world, humility was a sign of weakness. And so the, the priests, the prophets, the rabbis, the disciples would have completely despised anything that made you low. Um, Peter's just the one who says something. He says, no, you'll never, never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Jesus says, a person who's bathed all over doesn't need to wash, doesn't need to be clean except their feet. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you are clean, for he knew that Jesus was going to be betrayed, and that's what he meant by not all of you are clean. And so Peter says, like, okay, wait, wait, just wash my head and my hands as well. Because Jesus want, or Peter wants it to look like the ceremonial washing of the temple. Because that would be a more proper washing for a, a rabbi to do. This, this idea of him washing your feet would have meant that he was below Peter, that Jesus came under him. And Peter just couldn't fathom this. But Jesus says, Unless you let me do this, you aren't with me. You're not committed to me. What, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you followed me as teacher and you followed me as Messiah and you followed me as Lord and I've accepted you. But I'm not the Messiah that you think I am supposed to be and I'm not the Messiah that everyone's thinking that I'm going to come and conquer I'm going to conquer in a different way. I'm going to, I'm going to come and I'm going to serve and I'm going to suffer. And, 
and I'm going to be a Messiah who dies. I'm going to be a, a Messiah who gives his life for everyone. If you don't let me wash your feet, Jesus says to Peter, then you're saying you don't want to be a part of that Messiah. I hope you can feel the tension that probably was in that room. They all expect Jesus to be this kind of person, and yet he's saying, no, that's not who I'm going to be. What Jesus is saying to Peter, and I think he, say, he says it to us, is I want you to be committed to me. I want you to follow me. But in order, and I've already committed to you, but in order to follow me, you need to follow my way. And my way is sacrifice. My way is a service that kind of hurts. And, and that's a tension that I think we, especially as Americans, but, but maybe our coast of our friends too, that's a tension that I think we often ignore because we want a God who is standoffish or a God who is cool or a God who's powerful or a God who is victorious or positive or will help us achieve our dreams and get anything we want and, and, then, and maybe just stay out of the way enough for us to do all that and then, and then we get to go to heaven. That's, I, I mean, I think that's sometimes what we want in a God. And yet that's not how life happens. That's not how it happened to Jesus. That's not how it happened to Chris in our next restoration story. So give your attention to the video, please. Hello, I'm Chris Perret, and this is my restoration story. Growing up, I always knew that God was there. Um, I was raised in a church-going family. My first two years of school was in a Christian school, so really learning about Jesus was, was commonplace for me. The questioning really began when I was a young kid and seeing really how full of crap my family's and my parents' faith really was. Um, our religion was, was all on the outside for everyone to see, but God was not, was definitely not in our homes. Um, and at a young age, at about six, I really started to wonder how people could say that they believed in the Lord, but allow their six-year-old son to sit in circles with their friends and watch them smoke marijuana and and be in the circle and be there to pass it to the next person. And when they weren't smoking, the, the drinking was very heavy. They had big parties um, where there was a lot of things that children, no matter what age, should never be exposed to. Um, I do remember at a, at a very young age praying on these nights where my parents were having parties with their friends just praying for nothing bad to happen, um, but at the same time doubting and wondering if I was wasting my time um, and was God really there? Why was I praying? And really, it didn't, it didn't take long for me to, to stop praying altogether after seeing some of this. One of the first real trials was my parents' first divorce. I was in the fourth grade when this happened, um, and at that age I couldn't really grasp what was happening, why it was happening. All I was told was my sister, my mom, and myself were moving away from my friends, my family, and my dad. So we moved about an hour away to the coast with a family that we grew up with. Um, the family was 
a mom, a dad, and five daughters. Two of them were twin twins my age. Um, you know, and everyone thought, oh, we're moving to the coast. How, you know, can't get any better than that. We're living two houses from the beach. But it didn't take long for Satan to enter this house. Um, the lies and the deceit were were very short to follow. My mom continued to drink, but now she lived in the same house as her drinking buddy. So it was very convenient. And because of this, they were very oblivious to everything that went on. Shortly after we moved in, um, one of the older daughters started forcing myself and one of the twins to perform sexual acts on each other while she and the other twin would watch. This happened probably three to four times a week for about a year. And even when knowing that it was, knowing that it was wrong, I was told if I told, or if I said no, they would tell my parents that they caught us doing it anyways. So I had, I had no option but to continue. And this continued even without the parents knowing and with us praying at dinner every night. So this just made me believe further. How could, how could the Almighty God allow me as a fourth grader to shoulder a burden like this? And how could I believe in Him? This was um, this was a pretty dark time in my life. I I had no one to turn to. Um, my parents weren't there, and I certainly wasn't going to turn to my religion. The the, the one thing that I should have had. This was probably one of, one of my loneliest times in my life. I had no one to trust, and I felt like everyone had turned their backs on me and betrayed me. A few years later, my, my parents got back together, and as a sixth grader, um, I was ecstatic. I thought that this, this was going to fix everything. We were a family again. It was mom, dad, sister, brother. Um, I was no longer from a broken family. I was no longer living in a nightmare. But it didn't take long for me to realize that that wasn't true either. My parents still drank, but now my mom drank by herself and she would hide it from us, hiding her bottles, hiding her drinking. And my dad, well, he drank, but he would immerse himself into other addictions, mainly work, but also pornography. As a young kid, I saw things that I, I should never have seen. The fighting started not long after we moved back in together. I can remember many nights laying awake, hearing them fighting, mostly my mom screaming at my father, throwing things, and I had to go to school the next day. And I remember telling my mom that I couldn't sleep and she would just scream at me and tell me to get back in my bedroom. And this, another nightmare, lasted for about a year. And then they sat me down again and said they were getting another divorce. So again, I had to be the child from a broken family. And not only did I have to tell people that my parents were divorced, but I had to tell them that it happened twice. And by the time that I got into high school, I had pretty much absorbed all of their addictions, the smoking, the drinking, the 
pornography and take, I took them on as my own. I started with smoking marijuana and soon started drinking. But really the smoking was my crutch. I felt that I needed that. It numbed everything. When I was high, I wasn't that kid from a broken family. I wasn't that kid that went through the sexual torture. I, I didn't have the skeletons. In my junior year, my mom put me in therapy. I had developed a pretty twisted sense of what a woman should be and what her role should be and what I was to expect of them. But I just lied my way through it. I blamed all my problems on my mom and all women in general. I had no, absolutely no respect for women and it was very obvious when I was dealing with them. And after this, the drugs only started to get worse. I continued to smoke, but then I started to experiment with prescription pills and whatever I could get my hands on. And usually it wasn't just one, it was all together. And my life revolved around the next high. I was smoking all day. As soon as I would get up, before even getting out of bed, I was smoking. Smoking right up until I would go to bed, if I would go to bed. And then I, I don't even know what it was, but I took something and um, I went too far. I, I lost my vision while I was partying one night. And that brought me back to a little, to be feel like I was a little child. I felt like that lost little boy all alone. I had nobody. And now I couldn't see. It was temporary. I woke up and I, I could see again. And I remember this was the first time in a long, long time that I even thought about prayer. But how could I talk to somebody that let me go through all that I, all that I had? I still felt like it was me against the world, and I had nobody in my corner. Shortly after that, I, was, I joined the Navy, and this was a new beginning for me. I thought a fresh start, a new life, but being away from my family as much as I thought I wanted to be away from them was harder than I thought, and I still felt something missing. I still felt an emptiness. But I had a very, still, I had a very hard time believing that a true loving God was what was going to fill that hole after everything that I went through. So instead of turning back to Christianity, I started reading about Buddhism and studying Buddhism. And this actually was something that made sense to me. I understood it. It wasn't about me praying to somebody or answering to somebody. It was about my personal growth. I didn't have to pray to somebody. I didn't have to answer to a higher power. And it was only me that could let myself down. But even through this, my drinking still was, was an issue. One night, a friend of mine and I went out drinking. We never made it home. At 3.30 in the morning, I was pulled out of his truck after hitting a brick wall doing 40 miles an hour with no seat belts on. I was later told that I had a .46 blood alcohol, which should have killed me. I spent seven days in the hospital, and that was the first real time in a long time that I saw God at work. The man that I shared a room with, his family would come every night to visit him. 
and I had the bed closest to the door. And every night before, they would even go and say hi to their father, their husband, their friend. They stopped at the foot of my bed and prayed with me. For the first time in my life, I started thinking, why, instead of how could, why would these people stop and take the time to pray with me? They didn't know anything about me. I now know that God was putting his fingerprints all over my life. Not only should I have died from the alcohol, but I should have died from the car accident. And I later found out that I had a blood clot in my lung. I shouldn't have been able to walk out of that hospital. And he put these amazing people at the foot of my bed at a very, very critical time in my life. Part of me was overjoyed that somebody would love me that didn't even know me. Part of me was very hurt for turning my back on what I knew was right. But that wasn't the last time that I would turn my back. I moved to Minnesota in 2002. And I tried to reconnect around 2005. I found a small church and I really liked it. I started to attend every Sunday. Everything was great. I was meeting new people. I was getting connected. And I was becoming comfortable with the church. And then spring came and I wore short sleeve shirts. And these same people that the week before were talking to me like friends now looked at my tattoos and viewed me as the devil himself walking into their sanctuary. And then my thoughts quickly returned to the how could. How could these people look at me that way but claim to be Christians? How long after that, um, I met a girl that was going to a church. And I thought, you know, this is great. This is, well, this is what I need. My relationship lasted about two years. And I started to see that she was living the life of hypocrisy too. But now I was in it. And this girl was my childhood, all wrapped into one. She drank, she smoked, she was into porn. Being a couple, this is, these are the activities that we did together. And at this point, I know that I was the most empty, the most alone, the most scared that I've ever been in my life. I fell into the deepest depression that I've ever been in. And almost on a daily basis, suicide was on my mind. And to make matters worse, because of this relationship with this woman, I lost the privilege to see my son. His mom took him. I had finally hit rock bottom. I had nobody. I had nothing. But I turned to the one place that I felt that I could, the church's prayer room. And in this room, I, I completely broke down and had no idea what my life was worth and what it was about. And again, God put strangers around me that loved me and accepted me. Shortly after I met Liz, we started hanging out, unfortunately drinking and smoking. But I really liked her, even though everyone told me, you know, for whatever reason, don't be with her. I just felt comfortable and at ease with her. Four months into our relationship, we found out that we were pregnant. And by this time, I had started my 
my personal life with the Lord. But I still wasn't ready for church. I was praying, but I wasn't ready. And when we found out that Jocelyn was coming, well, this was um, definitely God shaking up our snow globe. And it showed us, well, at least me, that there was so much more than my personal pleasure, my life. And with Jocelyn coming, we knew that we had to make changes. We stopped with our party life, and we found out that we really didn't, didn't need it and didn't miss it. And then I started attending church with Liz. Not too long after that, I was asked to help with the Pinewood Derby and then help set up for the day in Jerusalem. And then I was asked to be the tax collector for the day in Jerusalem. And I thought, absolutely not, no way. This is not me. So I prayed. I finally said yes. And during this day in Jerusalem, dressed up as the tax collector, I had a group of school-age girls tell me the story of Jesus and tell me that their king could save even me. And he was bigger than my king. And this immediately, immediately sent chills up my spine. and It hit so close to home, I thought maybe... Maybe I wasn't alone in all those stories. Maybe I wasn't alone, and maybe God could save me. Well, the past two years has been a huge, huge leap of faith for us. We jumped in, we got married, jumped in and tried to help launch restoration, and I jumped into school, and God has been there, and I know I'm not alone. It hasn't been perfect. It hasn't been easy. We've lost a lot of friends, we've lost some jobs, and we weren't able to have a baby for 12 months. For the first time in my life, I wasn't scared and I didn't feel alone. I knew God was there with me. I now see that these trials are often God inviting us to trust in Him, not to try to fix things for ourselves. And we've also, we've made great friends. I now have my son back in my life. And I just got a new job that we know is sent down from God. And we recently found out that we're having another baby. And as a parent to Jocelyn and Parker and another one on the way, I just try to show them that there is a reason, a real reason, why we go to church. That we're trying to live each day with Jesus and we're trying to do this with other people so that people will see Jesus and not the hypocrisy. My name is Chris Perret, and that's my restoration story. Hello. It's a hard story graphic, it's filled with injustice, and Chris admits he wasn't always the victim, sometimes he was on the other end, but when I was reading his story first and then watching his story, I found just points where my stomach was, was just clenched, because I could feel the injustice. I could feel the things that would say, no, this is not how life is supposed to be. 
You're not supposed to be betrayed. You're not supposed to be abandoned. You're not supposed to be abused. You're not supposed to be... And in those moments, I also heard the Spirit of God say, I didn't promise life. And it wasn't trite. Please hear me. It wasn't trite. It wasn't like I'd go, mm-hmm, but there's going to be trouble. It was this compassionate, loving voice that came alongside me and says, I didn't promise it would be perfect. And, and when they're suffering, I promise to be there in the suffering. And the closer, Rob, that you get to the suffering of humanity, the closer you get to me. If you've been in Kosovo, if you've been in Honduras, if you've been in a place where the only hope is Jesus and you sit with people who are suffering, you find out that God is so abundantly present in those moments. I, I, it's weird, but one of the things that I, I wish for, if I could wave a magic wand and I, I could go sit in this room, in this upper room, and watch Jesus wash these feet, when he comes to Judas, who's going to betray him, and he looks at him, and he thinks, do I really want to go below him? Do I, I mean, this is the person who's going to sell me out. And then he comes to, to Peter, who he knows is going to deny him, not once, not twice, but three times, is going to deny that he even knows Jesus, that he's even associated with this person. And he sits and he washes their feet. I mean, what God kind of said is like, Rob, you want to talk about betrayal? Yeah, Chris experienced betrayal. Yes, you've experienced betrayal on a different level. But I know betrayal. But look how I responded. How do you respond when trouble comes into your life? I mean, Jesus says, we're going to have trouble. But, but do you respond with, with anger or do you respond with forgiveness? Do you respond with getting even? Or it might sound funny, do you respond with service? Because Jesus responded with service, like the lowest kind of service, the sacrificial service. I mean, this is very countercultural. Jesus took off the things that would have given him rights and the things that would have given him status and the things that would have given him power. And he, he removes those things or he takes those thing, things off to be a sacrificial servant. In another place, Jesus says, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that they may glorify your heavenly Father. And, and we, we have trouble with this sometimes because we don't want to be like, Chris's parents, no offense to them, but, but when Chris said they wore their religion on the outside, they pretended to be good. We don't want to do that, so sometimes we shy away from doing good deeds because we don't want them to seem like it's a show. But there's a difference, and it's something that each of us have to go and find and see what it is. It's at the very beginning of the, of the chapter here. Maybe you missed it in verses, verses 1 and 2. Actually, just verse 1. There's one difference between having it be a show and having it actually be what it is, actually be this picture of God. And that says, Jesus knew the hour had come. He loved his disciples, and now he loved them to the end. 
the difference for, for us and for Jesus' love. Everything Jesus did was motivated by love. And it isn't like a sappy, emotional, like, I love you. Life's going to be about roses and raises and rainbows and every other R word that sounds nice. Um, this is a strong, patient, persistent, enduring love. This is a love that says, I will, I will sacrifice. This is a love that says, I will go below you. This is a love that says, I will put my rights or your rights above my rights. This is a love that will die so that people know who I am. That's the difference. And Jesus says it so powerfully. <coughs> Excuse me. When it says the writer here, he loved them until the end. And then on the cross that we celebrate in five days, Jesus is nailed to it. And he says, it is finished. Or in the same word, he says, it is ended. And the writer's trying to key into that word. He loved them to the end. And then it is ended. He said, this is the punctuation mark on how much I love that I will even die. And Jesus took off his status. He took off his dignity, his prestige, his right, his place. In, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that, that we should have the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who in the very nature or essence was God. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped or clung to. Instead, he gave that away, and he took the very nature of a servant, even a slave. That is what he did, and, and maybe that's what we have to do. And I don't know where you're at with the God. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where, where you've never heard of this God that is a servant. Maybe you've never heard of this God who is a sacrificial servant. Maybe you've never heard of this God who personally cares and reaches out even to those who betray, even to those who deny, even to those who go through hell. I mean, and, and, and when we serve, we discover that. When Chris put on the tax collector outfit, did you hear that message? And the three preteen girls come up to him and go, look, even Jesus would die for him. Even Jesus would accept him. That was, that was God coming into Chris's life and saying, do you get it? In, in the most loving way. Like, I will, I will pursue you and I will restore you and I will make your life whole. That's not just a message for Chris. That's not just the message for Jesus. That's the message for us. But sometimes we have too much stuff in the way. I was going to call the message, take it off, but then I realized there would be some innuendo in that. That would be inappropriate. But what does it mean for you to take something off so that you can see the love of Christ? What does it mean for you to take something off so that you can serve? If you really know who Jesus is and you've committed your life to him, have you committed yourself to his way of sacrifice? Maybe, maybe for you, it's a little bit of pride that you need to take off and, and just serve those that are closest to you. Maybe it's, uh, you have to take off skepticism to truly examine the evidence for Jesus. Maybe you need to take off the bitterness or the anger of the things that were wrong to you and take those off so that you can receive that love. There's a, there's a yellow card that's in your folder thing that has that question, what might you need to take off? And it's not because we're trying to force 
what the Spirit of God might be saying to you, but we're just inviting you to ask that question right now. Ask that question to God of what might be in your way, what might you need to remove so that you can offer yourself to Jesus, and if you've never offered it, um, that you could do that today too. So we're going to have the, the worship team come up, and, and I want you to just think about that question. God, you became, you came to us. You came to us in Jesus. And Jesus, we see that you've taken off your rights, your privileges, your, all the power that you had, and you made yourself nothing so that you would be that sacrifice for us that we deserved. There, there should be more. Every one of us should have a story, God, like Chris, because, because sin is in the world, because death is in the world, because injustice is in the world. But, but you came, Jesus, and you conquered those things through your death and through your resurrection. You started a reversal process so that there would be no... So one day there would be no more injustice. There would be no more betrayal. There would be no more pain. But until that day comes, Lord, we still experience that. But we thank you for the moments where we see the Spirit of God come through. We see compassion come through. We see you in the suffering of humanity. You see those that are despondent. You, we see you in those that are widows. We see you in those that are orphans, God. And, and we want to see you in our lives. So whatever we need to remove, God, we ask that you would help us to see it and we would help us to do it. Lord, you say that that you've given us an example to follow. That now that just as you've washed the disciples' feet, you ask them, and I think you ask us to serve each other, to wash each other. And you, don't, you say, um, you don't just want us to, to hear those things, God. You want us to put them into practice. Blessed are you who not only hear, but for you who do. God, we want to be people who do so that they may see a true picture of you. So tell us what that is for our own lives today, God. In your name, amen.